Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Before I begin, if there's an extra thrill in the air here this morning in spite of our low numbers, it's because for the first time since 1832, as far as we know, we're on Facebook Live. (laughs) At least if Yvette's phone is still running, we're strapped to that microphone stand right there. Welcome. Since any statutes of limitations should have expired by now, I'll risk confessing to you that we did not own a television set when our kids were very young. At times we worried someone might report this neglect to Child Protective Services. But since we didn't have a TV, some kind soul had pity on our son Alden and gave him a broken remote control to add to the small collection of rocks and sticks his heartless parents had convinced him were actual toys. Obviously, remote control has quite a few syllables for a toddler. So he referred to it as his bokenontrol. It's very proud and very typical first-time parents. We thought the word both brilliant and cute, and so it made its way into the Walters family lexicon. And just now it occurs to me that it's amazing our kids ever learned to speak at all, since we tended to prefer the words they made up to the ones we were trying to teach them. But for some reason, Bokanon Troll was a word that remained in usage long after the thing itself had either been lost or chewed up by our yellow Labrador, the two fates of most of what we owned at the time. And by the time we had two kids who'd reached prime storytelling ages, the word had morphed into a proper name, the Bokanon Troll. The Bokanon Troll was no longer a channel changer. She was an actual troll, a kindly troll, mind you, who appeared suddenly one day in response to the intensifying demands for a story from two small backseat Walters during a car trip. Negotiating with terrorists is dangerous, but I broke down and I made up a story on the spot. And from then on, the Bokanon Troll was the unlikely heroine in lots and lots and lots of stories. Stories that always seemed to involve two children getting themselves into some difficult situation, the difficulty of which was closely related to the length of our trip somehow. And without fail, just when all hope seemed lost, the Bokanon Troll would come to the kids' rescue, a rescue that almost always involved jetpacks. Young parents, if there's nothing else in this sermon to take away, at least consider this. If you include both happy trolls and jetpacks in a story, you can fill in the rest with just about anything you'd like and it will be a smashing success. Now, if the great literary critic and Hebrew Bible scholar Robert Alter ever gets around to studying the body of my work, oral history included. I think he might call the arrival of the Bokanon Troll a type scene. Some of the details might change, but we know essentially what's about to happen whenever she enters the story, right? Things will get better, there will be jetpacks, etc. The type scene stirs up our expectations in a very interesting way. Even though we know basically what's coming, we don't check out of the story our attention is actually focused even more closely on the details. We may know where this is going, 
But how will the familiar storyline play out this time? Now in the Bible, when a woman and a man meet at a well, it's a first-rate type scene. And do you know what almost always happens whenever they do? They don't ride off on jetpacks. They get married. Back in Genesis 24, Abraham is in advanced in years when he sends off his servant to find a wife for Isaac, remember? The servant ends up at a well where all the daughters of the townspeople were coming to draw water. He's hit the matchmaker's jackpot. So he prays that he'll know which girl's just right when he, she offers not only water for him, but for his camel as well. And Rebecca walks up and does just that. Isaac and Rebekah, you might remember, will indeed marry, and one of their sons will be named Jacob. And a few chapters later, Jacob will meet Rachel, you guessed it, at a well, and will fall hard for her. There are complications, a tricky uncle-slash-father-in-law-to-be, drunkenness, an accidental marriage to her older sister, and all that. But these are just fresh new details that sparkle only more brightly on the surface of a story we already no. We knew Jacob and Rebecca would marry from the moment she arrived at the well with her sheep. The fun is in the particular twists and turns in this leg of a road that always ends up at a wedding. There are others, like Moses and Zipporah. These are not exactly minor Old Testament characters, you see. But the point here is that when Jesus meets a woman at a well, all kinds of type scene warning lights would be flashing for a reader of the Hebrew scriptures. We know what happens when a prophet meets a woman at a well. They marry. They have children. And even more importantly, this is how the story of God's chosen people continues. This is how the promise that Abraham's offspring will be countless as the stars gets fulfilled one generation at a time. In the end, these wells are not about love. They're about offspring, so that Abraham's line and God's covenant with Israel will live on. And eternal life is a never-ending line of progeny. So in John chapter 4, the old type scene announces to us what to expect. We know what happens when a prophet like Jesus meets a woman at Jacob's well of all places. Spoiler alert. Somehow the inevitable does not happen this time. Jesus doesn't marry the girl. The type scene gets broken, or maybe gets broken open. Jesus does not marry the Samaritan woman so that his line is sure to continue. He actually engages with her as someone worthy of his full attention in and of herself, and he sees her for who she is. And even more incredibly than that, she doesn't recoil or apologize or deflect, does she? She stands up straight and she listens to him, questions him, tells him what she actually thinks. Commentators note that Jesus is really just making an observation rather than a judgment when he tells her the truth about her marital history. And that divorce is not the only possible explanation of her five husbands. But here we are again, friends at a well, in the Bible. And the topic of, of conversation is, wait for it, marriage. 
But what happens as the story continues, we now know, is all wrong. Rather than being absorbed into the family line of Jesus, a whole dignified, curious person takes shape before our eyes in the body of one who's not supposed to be any of those things. The Samaritan woman's amazed by what Jesus knows about her, but it's equally amazing that she seems to engage him almost as an equal, pressing him to understand the rearrangement of another story that she, along with the rest of us, also thought we knew. Jesus is saying that maybe it now won't matter what temple you worship in or who your ancestors are, which, which means it may not matter whom you're married to either. The miracle is no longer that all these suitable wives have been found at all those wells for the patriarchs so that Abraham's lineage can unfurl off toward forever. The miracle is that God might just meet this woman where she is, as who she is. This woman, who's had plenty of husbands, but somehow doesn't seem to need any of them right now to be whole. I wish I had a mustard seed of the faith of that brave Samaritan woman. Because Jesus was dismantling the whole story that told her who she was. It told her who her people were and who they weren't and what God thought of them all. It told her how and where to worship and why that might matter. But she still stayed present to him and listened. Not under cover of night as Nicodemus did a chapter before. And he was an important religious leader with all kinds of authority she couldn't have dreamed of having. But she, a heretical foreigner in the eyes of Jesus' people, and a woman to boot, she stood there and listened in the bright light of noonday, we're told. And somehow she kept herself whole, even as Jesus told her that the structures and stories that had defined her all of her life were all falling away. Perhaps in frightening times like the ones we're living through right now, what we're left with when things are falling down around us, like the woman at the well, is the truth about ourselves. A truth that's actually more enduring than temples and bloodlines and nations. A truth that is absolutely more enduring than plagues and pandemics. Because the truth about us is that God found and finds each one of us Infinite, of infinitely more worth than any of the structures and systems that can seem more real and significant than a single, small human life like yours or like mine or like that of the minimum wage clerk at a suddenly empty store or, like, or of the child who still believes that all stories end in happily ever afters. So maybe if love of neighbor this Lent requires this strange new practice of social distancing, the avoidance of crowds. We'll find time and space in our lives to be present just to one unlikely person at a time who is worthy to be seen, but usually isn't. Maybe someone overlooked or unheard, but maybe someone Jesus would have gladly been caught in the act of talking to, seeing truthfully, bringing to life, Someone who might even turn from the encounter and head back into her Samaria to do the same. Amen. 
you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.